Well, um, by the grace of God, we're going to finish off this section tonight, and we will be on to uh, the angel appearing to Mary and showing up uh, and announcing the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to her. Uh, but for tonight, uh, my goal is to finish our look at this passage of the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, there's a bunch that has been said already on this text. There's a bunch that could still be said, and we could spend many more weeks on it. But um, in order to keep the pace a little bit, I think we're going to take a look really at that last section, the parts we haven't really looked at, verses 18, uh, really through the end of that section uh, in verse 25. And so uh, that's going to be our focus tonight. But before we get there, I want to recap, because I don't want us to lose the context of what's going on in this passage. I want to make sure we just remember where we've come from and where we're going so that we keep the, the through line of what Luke is trying to communicate as we dive and look specifically at the text closely. So you remember we talked about uh, Luke, the author of the book. He is writing primarily to convince Theophilus that he can be certain of the things that he has heard and he has been taught. And part of this certainty and part of what he starts off with this narrative is talking to Theophilus about the story of John the Baptist, specifically an angel showing up by God's divine command and prophesying the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, this is an interesting development because for the last 400 years, God has been silent according to uh, prophecy. He has not spoken in the last 400 years. And so this would have been a revelation. And so Luke starts off his accurate historical account with the story of God supernaturally speaking through an angel to prophesy a miraculous birth of a miraculous child. And so here is going to set the precedent for the rest of Luke's gospel that the miraculous and the supernatural is relatively normative and easy for God to do and for God to accomplish. And so this sets a precedent for Luke. And he starts off this story by telling of a dark time in Jewish history in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And then he tells us of a faithful priest and the faithful priest's wife. And they're both righteous and they walk blamelessly before the Lord. And there's a problem, though, with this priest and his wife is that they're barren. And this barrenness shows because it carries with them societal shame. So although they are deemed righteous according to God and blameless according to him, the society at large in which they live in would have seen this as a, a mar or a sin issue that was deep and hidden, and God is punishing them for their barrenness, or through their barrenness, he's punishing them for some sin. But nevertheless, this priest and his wife, they walk faithfully with the Lord. And this priest once a year goes and serves in the temple when his uh, division is on duty. And one such time, his division is on duty, and by random lot, he is drawn to go into the temple and to burn incense, which is an extremely rare opportunity for the priest. And so he prepares himself, he goes and burns incense in the temple, and then right at the moment at which he's burning incense, at the time of the evening offering, as the incense and cloud is going up to heaven and the people are praying outside, an angel of the Lord appears and has a very peculiar message for the priest. And he says to him, your prayer has been answered. And then we talked last week about what that answered prayer was. That is a prayer that was answered not only for him personally, a prayer that he had stopped praying at this point, but also a prayer that was currently being prayed outside of the temple, which was for the Jewish people to be delivered from their enemies and finally to be reconciled with the Lord their God. And so through the answered prayer, God is addressing both a personal need and, a re and his sovereign plan in redemptive history. And all the way through redemptive history, you see him addressing personal needs, through his sovereignty. And he can do this in beautiful ways. And so he does this at this moment in time. He meets a personal, individual need that hits his overall plan as well. And through the angel, the angel declares that there will be a, a son named John who's going to be born to this priest, and he's going, to be, uh, he's going to be marked. He's going to be set apart totally different than other children. He's going to be set aside because he has a specific mission that he's to accomplish in his life. And so he's not to drink wine or strong drink, He's to be unique, and he's actually going to be the voice of the prophet, which was prophesied in the last time that we had a miraculous sighting or a prophecy from the Lord. They say, the voice of Elijah will come. I will send my forerunner before you, and he will declare the way of the Lord. And this child is to be that spirit and power of Elijah, that voice crying out in the wilderness who's going to declare the way of the Lord. And so this sets a precedent of good news because this means if the forerunner is coming, that means the Messiah is right behind. And so this sets a really high, hopeful moment for the priest, or rather it should have. But this week we get into the response of Zechariah. And rather than responding in a joyous and hopeful uh, response, as you would have expected a priest who was barren his whole life and who was anticipating 
God to move and who was blameless and we were told that he was righteous before the Lord, you would have expected a righteous response. But you meet a man who, just like the rest of us, struggles with faith. And so tonight, we're going to primarily unpack this one main idea, which is that we have a faithful God of a faithless people. A faithful God of a faithless people. And that's the one thing that I want to drive home tonight, is that we have a faithful God of a faithless people. And we see this exemplified in Zechariah, and you can see it exemplified all through the Old Testament and in parts of the New Testament. But I just want to really emphasize that point because it's not really a problem for God that we're faithless. In fact, he sees those as opportunities to display his power even more mightily. And so if you look with me, I've set the scene right now, Zechariah's response, and we're going to look down at verse 18 to take a look at exactly what Zechariah says. So the angel has just told him this great news that there's going to be this child born to him. And he says, it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So you have a response of doubt by Zechariah after this joyful news has come to pass. And the angel doesn't much appreciate this, and we're going to get there in a second. But I just want to note that Zechariah responds to the angel in a way that is similar to how Mary's going to respond to the angel when he shows up to her. Not in the exact same way, but in a similar way. It's a response that, that leaves some explanation, that leaves something to be said, that leaves something to be desired in the explanation. And so Zechariah says, how shall I know this? And you can get this same language in your English Bible if you look to Genesis 15 and you see God tell Abraham, you're going to have this promised land set out before you. And Abraham says, it was believe, he believes God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then later in that same section, he says, hold on God, how can I know this? So he says the same wording that Zechariah says here. And so we have two now saints who've been deemed righteous and blameless before God who have balked or stuttered in their faith for just a moment. And we see actually that this is a consistent pattern throughout redemptive history, that when the angel showed up to Gideon, Gideon asks for the sign of a fleece. And when the angel shows up to Manoah, Manoah says, can you come and visit again? And can you come and visit again and explain to me what this child of mine is supposed to do? And when the angel calls out several times, when God actually speaks to Moses, Moses says, God, how should I know this? Because my voice, I, I, I stutter, I, I have this problem. And God has this consistent faithful action with a consistently faithless group of people. And he delicately guides them and leads by, them by the hand. In fact, in the book of Hosea, we saw God compared to a father who leads his child by the hand as he walks them through the wilderness. And he feeds them and he cares for them and he walks side by side with them, even though they fall, even though they stumble. And so Abraham has this similar response. But in Romans 15, verse 4, Paul says that these things which were written in former days were written for our instruction, that by the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so there's a reason that the angel responds harshly to Zechariah. Primarily because Zechariah knows of the story of Abraham. And he knows that God can do this because God has done this. And presumably, Zechariah believes in that God because Zechariah is now worshiping that God through the offering of incense. And so it's not as though God is asking Zechariah to do something which has not been done before because God has staked their faith and their hope in a saint who already experienced a birth in old age. And so Zechariah should have known this. He was a priest who worshiped God and he would have had part of this committed to memory as a priest. And so he is judged by a harsher standard because he already has the precedent set before him. Abraham has shown grace because Abraham isn't struck mute and deaf and dumb. But Zechariah, who should have known this story, who should have known that faith and who confessed to believe upon this Lord, balks when he is told the same good news, which reveals an on-the-ground struggle in his faith, an on-the-ground lack of belief. Which is interesting because that is a, a temporary lapse in faith. Because after this, if you go a few verses later in the book of Luke, he's actually the one writing the tablet saying, no, this child will be named John. And this is what he is to do. Because he at that moment has had some time to reflect on the good news. He's not walking constantly in faithlessness. 
but he is a momentary lapse in faith, as Abraham did as well when it says he believed the Lord it was counted to him as righteousness, but then a few verses later he asks for a sign. And so we have these saints who walk in faith boldly sometimes and then also are, are prone to deep valleys of lacks of faith as well. But it is not for their lack of faith that they are lost, but rather God remains faithful even though we are faithless. And so you have a temporary lapse in belief. But this is true as well, which is that all unbelief is sin. All unbelief is sin. In fact, when unbelief rears its full head, we call that skepticism. And you have people today who claim to be academics, who claim to be Christians, who claim to look at the Bible from an academic lens, but really all they're looking to do is to strip apart and to undo and to undermine the truth of God's word and to call it into question. Well, as R.C. Sproul says, when you read the scripture, you don't call it into question, it calls you into question. And so you have people who make it their full-time jobs under the banner of Christian to call into question the very truthfulness and trustworthiness of the word of God. And so this is unbelief fully reared all the time. This is not what Zechariah is struggling with, although his unbelief is still sin because you'll remember that this is God who's speaking to him. It's an angel who shows up in the, in the temple. That's not a wicked angel. That's not a misleading angel. This is an angel right next to the Holy of Holies. So Zechariah can take it on good authority that this angel is here under the authority of God if he's allowed to be here at all. And so here this angel stands and here he tells him the good news. And Zechariah's response leaves something to be desired. And you'll see in the response of the angel, the rebuke of the angel, he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And that response doesn't actually directly address what Zechariah has just lobbied up as a complaint. Zechariah has just submitted some evidence. Hey, take into account the fact that I'm old and my wife is old. I don't know if God knows that yet. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. I actually just came from the presence of God himself. Are you going to believe God? He's calling the authority of the Lord into question. And so when Zechariah has this complaint or has this questioning of knowing that this is true, this is a lack of the ability to believe the word of God and to count it as trustworthy. He fails to trust God. And that is his mistake. That is his balk. And we know the heart of God in this moment. And we know based on the response of God to Zechariah that God wants us to be able to trust him. And God demands that we trust him. But God is also a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so although Zechariah at this moment has just committed a sin which is worthy of death, to doubt the very word of God himself, God being patient, punches Zach punishes Zechariah in a temporary way with a brief punishment, not death, but simply he cannot speak and he cannot hear. And this is what Zechariah is going to have to walk with for only a brief period of time. So the, the punishment that God has for Zechariah reveals God's heart, which is that he desires for Zechariah to actually be able to one day respond in faith and to one day answer in belief. And he's going to be patient with this faithless priest who, although he served the Lord for his whole life as a priest in the temple, still struggles with faith. And I think there's great encouragement to be found there, which is that we all struggle sometimes in our faith. But yet we have a faithful God of a faithless people. In this case, we have exemplified the faithful God of this faithless priest who walks before us. The rebuke of the angel calls into question Zachariah's specific doubt of the very word of God himself. This angel, he says, I am Gabriel. He identifies himself. And this should also be assigned to Zechariah because the last time this angel made himself known by name was to the prophet Daniel. And when he shows up to Daniel, he shows up with a specific and unique prophecy for the end of days. And he shows up and he ministers to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. This angel has one job, which is to do this one thing for the Lord. This is not a low-ranking angel. This is not an angel who goes by no name. This is Gabriel. He's actually one of the archangels, which means he gets to stand and commune in the very presence of God himself, which means that when Gabriel speaks, God speaks. 
when Gabriel speaks, God speaks. Gabriel is a messenger of God. So to call the words of the angel into question is to call the words of God into question. And when you have the Bible today, you have the very words of God. And so to call the Bible into question is to call the very word of God into question as well. He's a messenger from God. And what is an angel, this powerful being, but a very servant or a very tool in the hands of his God? And Gabriel is not marked by his own accolades. In fact, the only thing that we know about Gabriel is his role is to deliver the messages of God to his people. But he is a powerful being. He can do many things. But all we know about him and all that really matters about him is how well he serves the Lord. And I think there's something to be learned in that, which is that even this powerful creature takes his only identity in how he relates to the Lord, his God. And so we, as servants of the Most High King, should also call into question how well do we and how obediently do we serve the Lord, our God. Because this creature is a servant of God, and that's all that matters about him. In fact, the angels serve God perfectly, and they still don't consider themselves worthy to even be able to look at the presence of God, but all they can sing is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so we as humans should take with great respect and great awe the fact that God even offers us open a relationship with him. Because the angels serve him perfectly, and not all of them get to commune in his presence, but yet he offers us the ability to be sons and daughters of the Most High King. I think there's great encouragement to be had from that. But really, we get to see on display here the love of God because he says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. In verse 20, he says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And here we have on display the very love of God himself because as Revelation chapter 3, verse 19 says, that he is going to reprove those whom he loves. He's going to discipline those whom he loves. And so for Zechariah to receive the discipline of God is for Zechariah to count himself among the number of whom God loves because he disciplines him in a temporary way and in a corrective way to bring about a corrective response of faith. He's not killing him eternally for the sin that he has just committed, which is to call into very question the word of God. So we see on display the love of God in his response. And actually, as you trace the Old Testament and the New, Zechariah can count himself among the likes of Peter, who denies Jesus three times, and then Jesus raises from the dead. He comes to Peter and he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And he goes on talking and Peter, God says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then in the third time, he says, do you love me? And Peter remembers how he also denied Jesus three times and how the Lord has just asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he gives Peter then a second commission, a second chance. And Peter carries this and then boldly in Acts, you see Peter respond in faith because he has now been encouraged, corrected, and commissioned out for the kingdom. And Zechariah gets the same corrective period where you'll see him at the end of chapter one, almost unrecognizable in his bold declaration of who this child is. Because God is all about getting us on board for his glory. And Zechariah is catalyzed to do that very same thing, just as Peter is, just as Abraham was in the Old Testament when he doubts God, he doubts God, he doubts God. And then eventually he's so bold that he's going to give up that very son who he was doubting God for in the first place, knowing that the Lord will provide. And this is seen as the pinnacle of Abraham's faithfulness. But that didn't happen overnight. That happened over a period of time where Abraham eventually grew more and more dependent, more and reliant, more and more faithful to his God because the Lord was sanctifying him over the course of a lifetime to be his servant. And we see the same, that the love of God, even his punishment, is a demonstration of his love because those whom he disciplines, he loves. And so we Christians can be sure that when God disciplines us and he reproves us and he chastises us for our misbehavior, that we can count that as an encouragement and a great thing to rejoice in because it shows his love for us. It shows us another opportunity to be able to respond. And so when he disciplines us, it should not lead us to despair. It should not lead us to hopelessness. It should lead us to repentance and faith and worship, which is the appropriate response because we have a God who is merciful as well as he is just. And he delivers his son 
to be the one who stands in the place of the full force of the punishment that we receive or we should receive. And rather, he takes that punishment on himself and he stands in our place and he allows us to get the full mercy of God. And so we serve a God like that. And so we can faithfully approach the throne room of grace boldly praying to the Lord, knowing that he will give us good gifts because he is a good God and a good Father. And so secondly, the other thing that this punishment uh, shows, the punishment that God has, uh, Zechariah not being able to speak. The second thing you see is that this shows the very sovereignty of God himself, which is that the Lord shows up to Zechariah with this great news of the prophet who's going to be the forerunner, the last of the Old Testament prophets, before the Messiah comes. And at this moment, Zechariah has the opportunity to respond in faith and doubt, and we know he responds in doubt. And this is a problem because this guy really needs to happen if Jesus is to come. But you don't see God concerned very much about that. In fact, as Gabriel says, you'll be unable to speak until the days that these things take place. They're still taking place. They're still happening. God is still moving forward, and this child's going to be everything the Lord just declared him to be. Zachariah's response is not news to God. It's not a shock. He doesn't have a catastrophe plan for this. But rather, Zechariah has forfeited his ability to rejoice in the movement of God. But God is still sovereign over the circumstances. In fact, everything that happens in the redemptive plan, when John the Baptist is put in prison, that's not a concern for God because God knew and planned for that to happen. When Jesus is betrayed by Judas, God is not concerned or worried or shocked in any way because he knew and he planned for those things to happen. And so the sovereignty of God shows forth in the fact that people have the choice to respond in faith or to respond in doubt, but their response does not thwart in any way or move the needle in any way of God's sovereign plan marching forward. Instead, they have the ability to opt out or opt in to his plan as it proceeds forward. And God moves, and Zechariah has the ability to respond. And when he responds in doubt, God's plan continues to move forward, unaffected, unaltered, and his providence is such that Zechariah is still able to eventually partake in the joy of these things. It shows the sovereignty of God. And a text on this, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 3, if you'll turn there with me. We can take great comfort in the faithfulness of the Lord our God. Romans chapter 3, verse 3. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul's response, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God says that his faithfulness is not thwarted by our faithlessness. As Paul writes to the young Timothy that although we are faithless, he remains Faithful, And as the author of Hebrews says, that God swears the promise to Abraham so that now by two unchangeable things, this is to be assurance for us. That by the oath and by God himself, we are to have assurance of our salvation, that the promise is good and the promise stands, as the author of Hebrews says. And so God is faithful, though we are faithless. And though Abraham was faithless, God walks through that sacrifice and through that contract with himself to assure that it's going to happen. Because God is faithful, though we are not. And this punishment is fitting. Because the angel has just given Zechariah the ability to respond in a profession of faith and a profession of worship. And Zechariah takes the opportunity to call into question the word of God. And as one author says, it was suitable that this kind of punishment should be inflicted on Zechariah. That being dumb, he might await the fulfillment of the promise which... Instead of interrupting it by his noisy murmurs, he ought to have heard in silence to begin with. God gives Zechariah the opportunity to respond in faith. Zechariah does not. And so the very mouth of Zechariah, which is only intended to worship the Lord his God, has now been silenced because it's not doing its job. And his ears, which were to hear the promise and to respond and stir his heart to faith, are not listening as they ought to have listened, and so he's going to strike those quiet for a while too. So Zechariah will have a period of time to think about the fact that the tools that God gave him for one explicit purpose, he has abused and sinned against God by doing the opposite of those intended uses. And so the proclaimers of the gospel in the book of Acts have this same choice, that they are alive for one purpose, 
that God has given them life and given them breath for, very, for one thing, which is to proclaim the gospel and to march it forward. And, and an on-the-ground thing that you can think about is that the very job that you have, the opportunities that you've been given, have been given to you by God for one reason, which is to march his gospel forward. The relationships in your life are for this purpose. Your gifts, your abilities, your talents, your treasures, and your time are for this very one purpose, which is to glorify God by the proclamation of his gospel and the advancement of his kingdom. And if you choose to take those gifts and those things that God has given you and not use them for their intended purpose, he has every right to take those things away from you, as he does to Zechariah. That might be for a season. That might be forever. That might be for this life, where you can think about that, and in the life to come, you can lament the fact that you did not take that opportunity because you do not get the crown that that would have borne with it. But God has given you these opportunities, and he's given you this text that by the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. So you can look at the example of Zechariah, reflect on all the opportunities you have in your life, and ask yourself the question, what things has God given me? A mind to write and to defend the faith? A mouth to proclaim and to reason and to engage with others? A mind which can think critically and engage with modern philosophies and modern thought in the world? Hands that can create beautiful things to put on display how God's people are hardworking? What is it that he has given you the ability to do right now in your life, in this season, that you can use for his glory? And then the question that follows, how are you going to use those things? The mouth and the ears of Zechariah had one purpose. And when he chooses not to respond and use them as he ought to have, he has them taken away. And it is the very grace of God that Abraham, when he refuses to respond in faith, doesn't have the same thing happen to him. And it is by the grace of God that every time you choose to not use those opportunities, that God doesn't take them away from you. But nevertheless, he gives you and extends you these opportunities so that you might have a chance to use them for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. He has patience and he endures with great patience us, his rebellious children. But his patience is not forever. Eventually his patience does run out. He is gracious and he is corrective, but I would encourage you not to test the correction of God because Jonah does something like that and it doesn't end up well for him. And there are in fact many who test God's ability to correct and they find out through very harsh and very trying circumstances that God can and will correct his people. So be obedient. Be an obedient child because you re receive less discipline because you're not being disobedient. So take encouragement from the example of Zechariah. But we see then again that God's purpose remains through the punishment of this prophet. He says in verse 20, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The word fulfilled that you see here in the text occurs all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament. In fact, many times they will say that these things were done to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. Or when Jesus is on the cross, it says that these things must have happened to him to fulfill the plan of God. The word fulfill is to com bring completion to the plan of God, that he has set these things forth and he will fulfill them in their time. And here, God's purpose remains. His redemptive plan moves on despite the doubt of Zechariah. He will fulfill his plan in its time. And later, we will see just in a few verses here that Elizabeth does conceive and she does get pregnant with the child, despite the fact that Zechariah calls into question God's ability to do that very thing. He desires our involvement in his plan. He, he brings us alongside to involve us in this plan and the moving forward in the proclamation of his word. But he is not restrained without it. In fact, if you want such an example, consider that all of humankind and all of humanity was created with one purpose, which was to bring God glory. And Adam rebels and Eve rebels, 
and they are cast out of the garden, and God sets into motion at that moment in time a plan to work about salvation so that, as Paul tells us, his name would be most glorified in the example of these people. And then Jesus Christ dies on the cross to be glorified by the Father and to bring about many other people who can then worship and praise the Lord their God. And Jesus, before he's crucified, as he's marching into Jerusalem, the Pharisees tell him to have these people stop worshiping you, tell your disciples to stop doing this, and Jesus has these very interesting words to say. He says, if they did not do this, if they were silent, these very rocks would cry out and worship me. God is not hindered in any way by our lack of worship and our lack of faith, because he can do, have rocks do what we ought to do. He can have creation do what we ought to do. He invites us into the plan. He invites us into the joy of worshiping him, but he is not dependent on us to receive any kind of glory. In fact, God is independent and self-defining by his very nature, which means he is not reliant on us in any way. So we should, as Christians, think about ourselves as children in the family who don't want to disappoint our father, but he is not dependent on us in any way to derive any glory from human beings. He tells us, and Jesus tells us, that rocks could worship if we choose not to. And so take encouragement by the fact that you are replaceable, and so make yourself so that you can worship the Lord with full boldness and with full assurance so that you are not replaced in that way. And then we see in the last few verses of this section, God's promise realized through the actual enacting of this prophecy starting to be fulfilled. And we'll see here in verse 21, the people were outside waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And I got to pause there. The reason why these people are worrying about his delay in the temple is because he is a priest who's just walked into the place where they burn incense, which is right next to the Holy of Holies. And if you've read the Old Covenant, if you've read the Old Testament, they actually have a conditional clause for priests who go this close to God. In fact, a priest who was to enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest, had to bathe and to prepare themselves for seven days following the ritual commands. And even having obeyed all of these commands, they still tie a rope around their leg and a bell on their robe so that when they walk into the Holy of Holies, if they are struck dead at that moment and the bell stops ringing, the people will know that this person's been struck dead by God, and so we're going to have to pull them out of the Holy of Holies. And so the reason the people wor are worrying is they're worried that something like this has happened to Zechariah. In fact, the, ta the Tamal, which is a, a book of Hebrew uh, orthodoxy or Hebrew literature, liturgy, about how to perform this exact offering, encourages the priests who do this to make haste while they're burning incense so that they don't tarry too long in that place and they don't sin while they're there in the presence of God and that they're struck dead by his glory. And so the people are rightly concerned because Zechariah has been in there quite a while at this point, conversing with an angel and being struck deaf and all those things. And then in verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And then verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, before I continue, Zechariah leaves the temple, leaves the burning of incense. And there's one thing that those Hebrew liturgy books tell us, which is that at the moment that he exits the temple after they've burned incense, he is to give a benediction at that point in time. In fact, his job at this point, his role and responsibility as a priest is to close this worship service up with a benediction to the people who've just been praying. And so the people who are waiting for Zechariah, they see him come out, and here he, he tries to speak, and he tries to give this benediction, and there's a, probably a little bit of chaos that assumes right at this moment, because he's not doing his priestly duty at this time, which in Numbers chapter 6, uh, 22 through, or 23 through 26, you see this very benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and he'll cause his face to shine upon you. But Zechariah can't give that benediction, and so the people are concerned and they're worried, and they conclude based on him miming signals. The Jewish people didn't have sign language, so this is probably a very confusing set of communications. And here Zechariah is trying to signal to them what has just happened to him, but obviously he's going to fall short. And so they conclude he must have seen a vision because he struck deaf and mute. And we know that he's not only unable to speak, but he's also unable to hear because later when John is being born and he is born, the people signed to him to let him know that Elizabeth is about to name the child, not a family name. 
So we can conclude from that that he is not only mute, unable to speak, but deaf, unable to hear. And so you have this interesting exchange with this prophet and this priest. And here we see this, this awkward exchange, but Zechariah is now fully realizing the shame of his punishment. And then he has to work in the temple until his time of service is ended and think about all that he's done, doing the very or acts of worship that he has done his whole life, probably the whole new meaning and a whole new sense of reverence and all because he has just encountered the very presence of God and the very presence of God's messengers. But then the story continues. And after his time of service was ended, he went home. In verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Here you have an interesting set of events and a very anticlimactic set of events. Luke, being the historian that he is, is going to set about with factual statements the order of events and the order of things that happens. He's not fluffing this up. He's not making any more or any less out of the miracle. In fact, if you, if you think about people who tell you stories, typically the more illustrious and the more unbelievable the story, the more they try to bolster it and say, no, 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 it, this is what really happened. But Luke makes no such efforts, no such strides. In fact, he considers it so factual that he sees it needing no additional proof or additional welcoming. It needs no fanfare. He says that, he goes home, his wife Elizabeth conceives, and for five months she keeps herself hidden. And these are factual statements for Luke because if the angel said it, it's going to happen. Because the angel, Gabriel, speaks the very words of God himself. And for these days Elizabeth conceives, and then it says that for five months she keeps herself hidden. Now there's a lot of speculation as to why she keeps herself hidden. Some say she keeps herself hidden because she wants to be sure and confirm that she is actually with a child and this is not her own musings and the musings of her crazy husband before she's going to tell other people about this. Some say she responds appropriately in faith, but she keeps herself hidden so that she can actually show so that other people won't see her as crazy and having lost her sense after being barren her whole life and desiring a child for her whole life. And you might ask why five months, those of you who are in the medical profession know it doesn't take five months to show, but in those days and in that society, the clothing that a woman would have worn would have made it a little bit more obvious at the five-month mark that she is, in fact, pregnant. She doesn't wear tight-fitting clothes, and so she has to wait a long time if she wanted to show and have those things confirmed. So there's speculation there. Maybe she waited five months so she could, in seclusion, worship the Lord her God and pray and give thanks to him in isolation away from people. Maybe that was why. The truth of the matter is, Luke doesn't tell us. We don't know, and so we can speculate and we can hope and think of an answer, but the truth is the text doesn't tell us why, only that she does withdraw herself. She withdraws herself for a period of five months, and one of the things that she says to herself during this five-month period of time is summarized by this statement that you get in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. One of the interesting things about the God of the Old Testament is he is described uh, by some people as the God who sees me. In fact, you remember Hagar, when she is sent away by Abraham, she has an encounter with God. And she says, this is the God who sees me. He has looked upon me and he has seen my situation. And he has intimately in a one-on-one relationship loved me and shown his mercy upon me. And this is the God also described in the New Testament here by Elizabeth saying he is the one who has looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She carried blame and she carried shame for her barrenness. And God looks upon her with compassion and with mercy and gives her the ability and the blessing of having children. She experiences a great joy, just like Sarah who laughs in the joy of finally having a son. Though she had great doubt, she has great joy. And here Elizabeth, who probably had great seasons of doubt to the point where she stops praying, has now experienced a great moment of joy where she can, re- she can rejoice and she can worship God in her heart in her time of seclusion. And this brings about a biblical worldview issue, which I think needs to be recaptured in our society, which is that children are a blessing from the Lord. 
So if you'll permit me, in Psalm 127, verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. That is a biblical worldview statement on how we as a society ought to view children. In today's culture, the worldview sees children as a burden or as an inconvenience to an otherwise dandy life. We see them as an expense item on the budget sheet, something that needs to be dealt with, to be disciplined, to be escaped from if you're to have any peace and quiet. To, as young married people, you have to wait for a certain period of time to have children so you can really have your fun while you can have it. Because once children come, that whole fun is going to go away. But the Bible carries no such connotation and no such mention or no such view of children. Children are considered by God to be a blessing. And they're considered to him to be a heritage. In fact, it is the joy of these people who walk with a biblical worldview and who walk with God to cherish their children and to train these children up in righteousness. And these children, walking in faith, brings honor and glory to the parents. And these children, walking in faith, are to be invested in and to be poured into. In fact, such God views children so highly that when Israel stops doing those things, he takes away their ability to have children as a punishment. And so there's a few things that we need to underline and underscore about this. One is that children are a blessing from the Lord. That's how we ought to view them as Christians. Don't buy into the lie of society that tells us that children are an inconvenience or a line item in the budget or a burden. Yes, they are a burden, but Jesus' worldview has many connotations. One is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So the things he calls you to do and the blessings he gives you, although they are high responsibilities, they carry high periods of rest and reward as well. That is the biblical worldview of children. But there's another item, which is maybe not for us at this moment, but I want to implant this theology into you now, which is barrenness is not a shameful thing. It might be that children are a blessing from the Lord, and it might be that the Lord has called you to walk in that period of suffering for your life, for his purposes and for his glory. And that's something that needs to be underscored because there are many Christian women who carry this shame throughout their life because they're unable to have children. And so as a young church, I think it's important that we have this worldview well-established because we will be walking through these seasons by God's grace as we grow and mature as well. And so I want us to walk faithfully, seeing children as a blessing, but not also shaming those who have been burdened with the suffering of not being able to have children. So I want us to walk in both of those contentions and walk in maturity and walk in a maturity of faith, seeing these things rightly as the Lord sees them. Because he doesn't see this as shameful for her. He sees it as an opportunity to give her glory and to make his presence and his power known through their life. So we see these two worldview issues that need to be addressed. But this is a radically different worldview than what the world offers us. And this is something that is important for Christians to understand, which is that the biblical worldview at many places divorces itself from the world's view of things. And as a Christian, when you see these, these uh, differences, the temptation is to look at these and see that these are cultural differences, which is that we read the Bible through a Western lens, and we read it through European eyes, and we see that though our culture doesn't value these things and their culture does, that this is a cultural difference even though it's the same God. But I want you to know that you shouldn't be too dismissive of someone else's culture because you'll remember that the Jewish people's culture and kingdom was established by God. Which means you shouldn't dismiss their practices of sacrifice as barbaric because God had those sacrifices in place to paint a very specific issue about the atoning work of his son. And you shouldn't dismiss their cultures of marriage and arranged marriages as outdated because God has that very picture of you can love people despite the fact that emotions fade because faithfulness and covenants are more important than emotional highs. And their view of marriage actually projects out better in terms of faithfulness than our view does, by the way. And their view of children is different than ours, but we shouldn't dismiss it as a cultural difference. It is a biblical worldview issue. So when you encounter these things in the text, don't dismiss them as culture. Do the hard work to ask yourself the question, what is God communicating here through this narrative? What is he communicating about himself in these commandments? These are things that we can ask ourselves as students of the word. But I want to close by giving us a few points of application, a few things to walk away with from this text. The first is we've now spent three weeks in this text and we've seen God move in mighty ways. 
He started speaking through the angel showing up, and he has now given the news of the Messiah who's to come because he's told of the forerunner who's going to precede the Messiah. And this is going to set the precedent for all of the Gospel of Luke. And so we've now been introduced to the first narrative story in Luke's account, which remember, Luke thought it was important for us to know this detail. And he's setting about a theology that he's going to work through. And part of this theology is that angels are real and they interact with the world. And this is something we've talked about. Christians should adhere to today as well. Angels are real. They are really present. They work in the world, visible and invisible. They are a reality. And Luke addresses them as such. So he's putting about a movement. The second thing is the Holy Spirit is real and he moves in this world. And we are dependent on him. We talked about this last week in terms of holiness. The child is marked by the Holy Spirit moving and indwelling in him and possessing him. And this is throughout all of Luke's gospel. You will see movements of the Holy Spirit. And the church is still dependent today on the Holy Spirit. So these are, these are things that we need to have a theology about and we need to understand what Luke is trying to communicate to us through his writing. But by way of application, and we've talked about this a little bit, why is Zechariah punishing this way his silence? And we've talked about this as the things that you have, the gifts that you've been given, are tools by God to use for his glory. And so you've, you've had some time now, the first time that I mentioned, to start to think maybe and have the Spirit press on you a little bit. What are those tools that God has given you to use for his glory? And so I want to give you an affirmative statement, which is if you have a tool that you know is to be used for God's glory, you ought to use it for God's glory. That is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. It is not as though you can be part of a body of faith and consuming only because God has called us to be a body and every member of a body, every cell contributes in some way to the overall function of the body. And so by the analogy of the body and the gifts of the spirit, we know that we are to be mutually affirming and encouraging of one another. For some seasons we need to be poured into, sometimes we are pouring ourselves out. But in every way we are seeking to edify and to build up one another and our fellow Christian. And this is all for the glory of God. So if you have a gift that you are aware of that you can use to edify the body, you must use it to do so. You must use it to advance the kingdom of God. If you have an opportunity and a relationship and work where the gospel needs to be preached and a biblical worldview needs to be proclaimed, you must take this opportunity to move forward with that worldview. Because to do so is to honor the Lord your God. It's to use your mouth for the very purpose that he has given you that mouth for, which is to bring him glory. And when you hear the words of God here and when you read the words of God through your scriptures, when you meditate on these in your private time, when you read the scriptures, you are to believe them and to examine your heart because he has given you eyes to read and a mind to think. And you are to use these tools to understand and to know God better so that you can, with your mouth, worship him better and with your heart, serve him better and believe him more faithfully. He has given you these things to better worship him. So that is the first application. The second thing is that I think it is a great encouragement and it is very freeing that God is not in any way dependent on us to move forward. He invites us into that movement. He invites us into preach the gospel, but he is not in any way restrained if we do not. And so I think this is freeing because if you've never shared the gospel with someone, there's this fear and there's this apprehension that if you miss say something or if you have any kind of pause or you misrepresent God in any way, that you'll have sinned in some great way. And so then there's this fear to get started and there's this fear to step out because you're worried you might make, make a mistake. And I just want you to know that the burden is not on you. God has invited you into that and he is already moving in power in that relationship. And so he's inviting you in to start practicing and to start working and to start advancing his kingdom and to start proclaiming his word and to start building relationships for his glory. And he invites you into that. And there's a freedom there, which is that there's no risk. You can't screw this up in any way. But you can rejoice and move forward in the joy of working with your father cooperatively by advancing his kingdom. And there's a great joy in that. And so I think there's freedom that is to be, uh, to take a burden or a load off of us who live in a society where everything we do has an effect, either positive or negative. And so I think as Christians, we ought to have a biblical worldview about this kingdom thing, which is that God is moving, and he's got a whole army of angels that are doing their thing as well, and he just invites us along for the journey to participate in this process with him. 
and that we are commanded to do so and we are invited to do so. But if we choose to do it and we screw it up in some way, we really, there's not much risk there because he's already moving. He is great and powerful and I think there's a great freedom there. So if you've been thinking about sharing the word with somebody, sharing the gospel, introducing a biblical worldview to someone, and you've had a pause because you're worried you're going to missay something, I want to encourage you to take out that step of faith and to, to do that thing you are afraid to do because God's already moving and he invites us in to move with him. And so as I close, I want to do the thing that Zechariah was unable to do, which is to give the benediction to his people. So in Numbers chapter 6, if you want to turn there with me, I want to read this benediction over you before I close in prayer. In Numbers chapter 6, this is the very benediction Zechariah would have been able to give to the people upon offering the incense and offering his worship to the Lord his God. And as the prayers of the people were lifted up, he would exit the temple and he would have said these very words. And so I think that it is an appropriate way for us to close as well because we do have mouths to speak and you all have ears to hear the words of this benediction. Numbers chapter 6, and we're going to be in verse 23. He says, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, and here's the benediction, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word for us tonight. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who invites us to join you in the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, there are so many ways and so many times in which I know I struggle with unbelief, and I'm sure that there are many of us who could say the same, that if we were like Zechariah in that moment, we would have stumbled in a moment of faith in a lapse of faith. But Lord, we know that you are faithful to override and to be gracious to overcome our lack of faith because you are the faithful God of us, your unfaithful and stubborn people. And so Lord, I pray that your scriptures would be an encouragement to us, that they would be uh, an example for us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness to be faithful and to speak words of faith where we ought to speak words of faith, and whether that's to our own hearts or to someone else in our lives that we need to speak your truth to. Lord, I pray that your truth, which is the truth, would be made known through our mouths, and that we would be your tools, your messengers, just like the angels who faithfully serve you, Lord, that we could be faithful servants of you, our Most High King. Lord, and I pray all these things according to your name. Amen.